Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second season of West Side Fairy Tales. I'm your host, reader, writer, and producer, Tyler Bell. And I'll be honest, I missed you guys since we broke for our off-season hiatus last spring. Now, bear with me for this introduction. Uh, I've been sick, so my voice sounds a little jacked up. But don't worry, I recorded the episode, most actually all of the episodes, uh, much earlier (laughs) this year. So uh, you don't have to worry about this for the next, like, half hour just for the intro and the outro. 
And for those of you who are new listeners, welcome. We've got a great story for you today, but before I get into it, I want to tell you about a great book I read recently. Universal Harvester by John Darniel is just, uh, it's just great. It's a very short book, and basically any description of the plot threatens to spoil the ending, so I'll just go with this. It's a book about people. People and how they relate to one another. There are cults, and this guy that works at a video store keeps finding tapes. Those are, uh, we watched movies on back in the 90s, if you haven't heard, that have been recorded over with bizarre scenes taped inside barns. If you don't know John Darnielle, he's the guy behind the best folk band around today, the Mountain Goats, which is basically just him and whomever he's hanging around with at the moment. I listen to All Hail West Texas all the goddamn time, so I'm already a bit biased when I picked this book up, but uh, the thing is, it's just real damn good. It's a horror novel, technically, but much like uh, Danielowski's House of Leaves, it's more a character study of the people in the story. Without going much further, I'll just say check it out. It's dope. Today's story is a character study of sorts as well. Our main character, a woman, a mother of two named Kimmy, a housewife, feels stuck in a rut. She married a man she never loved and had children she feels a great deal of affection for. She studied to be a nurse and yet is stuck making bacon for a man who doesn't really appreciate her. But an old friend has come to visit, come to stay, really, and he's going to help her break that malaise. So, without further ado, here's So Long Roscoe. Monday. Monday meant eggs. Eggs and coffee, but cooked the bacon first so the sulfur smell didn't get in her nose. Kim stared down at the fat sizzling on the hot iron. The lights from the oven hood turned the enamel white of the range to a pissy yellow. She turned them off, her hand finding the switch by muscle memory. The pan was hard to see like this, but bacon didn't need light to cook. It cracked and sizzled. Bacon again? Roscoe asked. She clenched the spatula in her hand, crushing it so tight the blood fled from her knuckles. His voice had that same spitting meat feel as the bacon in the pan. It had cupped up at the edges. She flipped it over. You remember when you were against bacon? Meat in general. She dared a glance over her shoulder and saw him sitting in the sink. Legs clad in soot-covered jeans dangled over the edge. His head rested against the window behind him. He wore a red hoodie the hood up over his face and covering his eyes. The cloth reeked of smoke, like it always did. Patchy flesh peered out from the hole singed into the arms and shoulders. Fuck Primus still shone in scratchy block letters on the chest, scribbled there by a fat-ended Sharpie long ago. You remember, he said with a laugh. You remember Chip Schiffmeyer dropping that chunk of fried fish in your salad in sophomore year? Oh, you're so pissed. You smashed it in his face and everybody called you a freak. He hopped down from the sink, his bloody white converse not making a sound on the linoleum. He whispered in her ear. Then you ran into the girls' room and licked your hand and that greasy fish slime tasted delicious. Remember? Wasn't that hilarious? 
Then I find any of that funny, Roscoe, Kim said, turning on him. But he wasn't there. Her tiny kitchenette, shoved into the corner of their two-bedroom apartment, sat empty and sterile and white. Matt rounded the corner just as she was patting herself down, fixing an apron or skirt she wasn't actually wearing. The stretchy blue sweatpants, two dollars at Gabe's, were as uncreased as they'd ever be. Hey, is that bacon I smell? Matt asked, knowing full fucking well that was bacon he smelled. She smiled and poured him a cup of coffee, squinting her eyes to make the smile more complete. Kim had discovered recently that her smile no longer reached her eyes. Her daughter, Millie, had told her it was creepy in the car the other day. Kim hadn't thought much of it until she'd come home and tried it out in the mirror. She didn't look into mirrors much these days. No point. Nowhere to go, nobody to impress. Nothing but morning jogs, three squares a day, and functionally enjoyable sex with Matt. On occasion. Usually while drunk. Sometimes, while drinking. Kim had noticed her creepy smile, standing naked in the bathroom after a run. She ran after everybody had left for work or before everybody got up. This was one of the latter cases. She could hear the kids snoring softly in their shared bathroom as she sized up her body in the mirror. Stomach flat, stippled with muscle. Arms still as cardio-skinny as they had been when she got competitive at cross-country as a high school freshman. Her breasts showed only the barest hint of sagging, a slight deepening of the crease between the underside of each one and her stomach. At 33, her body was in great shape. Her face and skin had begun to show their age, lines that never went away, that got a little deeper by the time Christmas rolled around. In her heart, Kim knew she was preserving herself, though she didn't know for what. Like the 11-year-old hunk of frozen wedding cake in the freezer, she was stuck in time, deteriorating, perfect, there, forgotten. And with that thought in her mind, she had smiled. The effect had frightened her more than the possibility of a dark splotch on her now annual mammograms. Her mouth moved without disturbing the rest of her face, as though somebody had pulled her smile into place with the tips of their fingers. Her eyes were cold, distant. Kim wasn't afraid of the smile itself though she did look ghoulish in the thin morning light coming through the soaked bathroom window. She was afraid that her mask was slipping, and that she'd been wearing a mask in the first place. Had other people noticed? Her other daughter, Ursula, or Matt? She was more frightened after realizing those were the only people in the whole goddamn world who would notice, who could. She didn't have friends, or even acquaintances, really. Kim had felt nauseous and braced herself against the sink. She smelled him coming before she felt his fingertips tracing hot lines across her naked stomach. Roscoe slid back into her life like carbon monoxide beneath a nursery door. His disgusting cheek pressed up against hers and she could see the pointed ends of his cracked teeth as he broke into a smile. I still think you're beautiful, baby, he'd whispered. That had been almost two months ago. Seven egg and bacon breakfasts with coffee and just as many weeks of Matt sauntering into the kitchen and asking if he smelled fucking bacon cooking. He did, every time. He never smelled coffee. He never noticed the son or their daughters fighting over the computer before and after school. He didn't see Kim teach herself how to perfectly mimic a real smile by squinting her eyes a certain way. But he noticed that fucking bacon every Monday. In a few minutes, she had everybody at the table and eating. She sat last, digging into her single fried egg and two strips of bacon with slow, deliberate incisions. Matt insisted they listen to the radio, and she did her best to tune out Ira Glass's simpering, nasally whine. She froze mid-bite as Roscoe rose up from the floor behind Matt. She could see the green glint of his eyes as he raised her white-handled Cutco chef's knife, 
a $120 purchase from Matt's niece over Matt's head. Matt went slack as Roscoe's scabby hand cradled his chin. Roscoe grinned at Kim and then started slicing the side of Matt's head off in bloody ribbons. Skin fell onto the shoulders of his powder blue button-up shirt and left smears as they slid down onto his lap in clumps. Kim took a deep breath and blinked and Roscoe was gone. Matt gave her a quizzical look and dug back into his meal without asking a single question, his head back in one fat piece and sat firmly on his thick neck. Matt would never ask her if she was okay, if she wanted to talk about something or had something on her mind, because he knew he was getting fat and old, and no closer to any sort of success than he'd been when he'd finished inside her drunk at a college party 12 years ago. Kim didn't remember the incident at all. She'd been seeing Matt on and off again because he had a good weed connection and bought all of her drinks. Roscoe had been around often at that time of her life, when she was working herself near to death to finish her nursing degree. Matt thought he was the only one for her. More by ego than evidence, but she'd been drowning herself in cheap hookups and anything that could crack the doldrums of school and work. And so Kim Waverly had gotten knocked up on a filthy green couch at a nondescript flop house. Four weeks after that, a doctor at the free clinic had told her that, yes, she was pregnant, and no, they did not do abortions. So she had kept the child, become Mrs. Matt Beaker, and named her first daughter Millicent, after her favorite Disney villain. Now she cooked bacon on Mondays, the highlight of her husband's week. Mom, can I ask you for something? Ursula said. Yes, honey, what is it? Kim replied. Roscoe was flitting around the room now even being several places at once, and she followed him with narrowed eyes. He stopped behind Ursula. Her youngest daughter had Kim's own auburn hair and hazel eyes. She was six now, and had a gap in her upper row of baby teeth. Um, she started. They're asking kids if they want to be in the Cub Scouts or the Brownie Scouts, and the Cub Scouts get to fish and go camping and shoot twenty-two rimfire rifles, and the Brownies just sell cookies. That's what Bobby Howard said. Roscoe flipped the knife around his fingers like a drumstick. Kim nodded for her daughter to continue. Well, okay, so they said I could be either one if I wanted, but Cub Scouts was really just for boys, but if I wanted, I could do it anyway, even though I'm a girl, if you and Dad said it was okay and Dad volunteered to be a helper. Um, well, of course, it's fine, Kim said. You're going to shoot rimfire rifles? Why? To put holes in paper, Ursula said with a broad grin. Holes in paper, Kim repeated forcing herself to look at her daughter even as Roscoe lowered the knife. That's fine with me. Go nuts. Ursula smiled and then frowned as Kim glared at Roscoe. His face hung just over the girl's tiny shoulder. Kim could see the exposed, blackened bone of his left eye socket. Ursula looked over her own shoulder to follow Kim's expression. Kim jumped up and grabbed Matt's newspaper off the table, swinging it over Ursula's head and threw the specter of Roscoe. It felt solid for a second and then it was gone, as though it had never been there. Perhaps it hadn't. Kim rolled the newspaper up and slapped it hard against the refrigerator twice. She heard rattling at the table as her family jumped in unison. Shit, she said aloud, turning to them. Did you see that spider? The rest of the morning was uneventful, and Roscoe behaved himself as best he could, sitting on the refrigerator and kicking the magnets and papers off onto the ground. Kim forced herself to ignore him, to not react when he started swinging off the chandelier, ripping it from its moorings. He crashed through the dining room table, a collapsible circular card table Matt had found outside a run-down bingo hall. Martha Stewart had said a nice tablecloth could hide anything, and she'd been right, for the most part. Matt left with Ursula, who still went to the primary school. Drop-off times were half an hour later for Millie's middle school, and it was in a different direction to boot. Matt threw out another of his tired aphorisms, 
Off to the old salt mines. When he left, mining would break Matt like an old twig, she knew. And that's what her father had done for a living up in West Virginia. Matt sold real estate in Pensacola, Florida, for a firm that neither respected nor rewarded him. He did do his best. She kissed him. Kim turned in time to catch Roscoe's knife just before it smashed down into Ursula's skull. It tore into the forearm she threw over her daughter's head, sliding easily between both arm bones and showering her youngest with blood. Her fingers twitched impulsively as tendons and nerve connections severed. Her daughter thought the move was an impromptu hug, and she embraced Kim's leg, rubbing her cheek against the solid thigh muscle. Roscoe watched them from atop the stove, face slack and expressionless, his chin hanging low. The knife, perfectly clean, sat in the wooden holder beside him, where it had always been. We have a few minutes before school, Kim said to Ursula. Her daughter's perfect little face looked up at her. Why don't you play with the computer a bit, now that you have it all to yourself? Ursula grinned and ran to the black IBM set up in the corner of the living room, where she'd spend the next ten minutes playing the hell out of solitaire. The girl refused to try the game with real cards. Kim looked at Roscoe and gestured toward the bathroom. His slack face rolled slowly on his neck until it faced her. She knew he understood, and wasn't surprised when he was already waiting for her there. He was leaned up against the wall, hands thrust in the single large pocket at the front of the hoodie. Cute kid, he said. Younger than you were when we met. Remember that. I do. He walked over to Kim and stood close to her. I know you do, too. What the hell do you want? She asked, rubbing her temples. I want to make you happy, girl, he said, getting closer. I want to make you feel good. Remember when I made you feel good? He wrapped his arms around her, running one hand over her shoulder and then her throat, and the others dipping down over her bottom. Then he pushed her violently forward so that her head banged painfully against the faucet. Remember? She took a deep breath and blinked. The pressure of him was gone and she was alone again for a second. She flipped on the ceiling fan to stifle the noise in the bathroom and sat down on the toilet to pee. He came back in and sat on the edge of the tub, his face inches from hers. His eyes were the only clean part of him, the only part not torn or burned or missing, just like the last time she'd seen him. I remember, she said after she finished. She buried her head in her hands. Who did you talk to before you made me? He asked with a laugh. I'm imagining a mean little purple teddy bear with teeth. Grrr. His fingers clawed the air between them. She chuckled, despite herself. He'd always made her laugh, even when he'd hurt her. Even after he'd hurt her. There was nothing, she said. A pause followed. Maybe that's not true. Nothing like you for sure, but a piece in me waiting to be fitted. Searching for the right puzzle. I was going to kill you one day, he said solemnly. I know, she said. You shouldn't feel bad, he said. I don't. Liar, he replied, his voice all that was left of him. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kim found Ursula at the computer, her chin propped up on one hand and cards flying rapidly over the screen. It looked like her daughter was randomly pressing buttons, but in fact she just played that fast. Millie did too, but Ursula was the fastest of the two by far. It irked Millie to no end, even though she was better than Ursula at literally every other contest of skill. Let's go, baby doll, Kim said, tousling the girl's hair. She nodded. One second, Ursula said. She clicked the mouse maybe a dozen more times and the game ended in victory. Ursula harumphed and crossed her arms dramatically. I think this clock on the computer is broken. I know I was faster than a minute. I'm sure you were, dear, Kim said, ushering her daughter off the computer chair and shutting the machine down. We'll have your father look at the computer after school and see if he can fix it. Dad is terrible at computers, the second grader mumbled. I bet if you got me a book for it like we get for the Legos, I could take it apart and fix it. I'm sure you could, dear, Kim said. Then they were out the door and heading to school in Kim's frumpy station wagon. The vehicle was pink and had nearly half a million miles on it. It had belonged to some southern snake oil preacher before he traded it into the dealership. The station wagon was the cheapest thing they had, but Kim had needed a car for errands and that was what she got. Matt, of course, had a brand new Chrysler LeBaron, fresh off the lot from one of the nicer dealerships on the other side of the interstate. It was red, had a drop top, and a pretty nice speaker system. Kim's station wagon only picked up the AM band because something had broken in the stereo and the AM-FM button no longer worked. Matt needed the better vehicle, he said, because the real estate customers won't buy spit from a man with a shabby ride. How fast does this baby go? Roscoe asked from the passenger seat. Ursula sat in the back, just behind Roscoe, because that was her seat in every car, whether they owned it or not. They had ridden in a bus once on a trip to Orlando and the experience had nearly broken Ursula. She could not decide whether she sat in the second seat from the front or the first seat from the back. 
Her tantrum had subsided after a few seconds, and she had settled on curling up on Kim's lap. Kim saw her in the rearview mirror, clucking her tongue softly every time they passed a gray mailbox. Bland Pensacola suburbia spread out all around them, and there were plenty of gray mailboxes. It was one of a dozen small, personal games that Ursula played to entertain herself on car rides. Roscoe leaned over in the back seat. He was there now and in the front at the same time, and clacked his broken teeth together. Some of them chipped further and bits of tooth fell onto his lip. Bet we could get this baby up to 80 by that stoplight, he said. Give the six o'clock news something to speculate on. Was she drunk? Depressed? He adopted a newswoman's brusque falsetto. Did she even think of the poor six-year-old girl in the rear seat of her car before killing herself and six others at a stoplight on Northwest Street? Police have yet to release the toxicology report on the mother of two. Kim bit her lip, dying to tell him to shut his fucking mouth but not wanting to disturb her daughter. Ursula had grown bored of clucking at mailboxes and now sat clapping a song out on her thighs, some tune Kim recognized from the radio but couldn't place. Roscoe joined in, singing along perfectly until Kim recognized it as that new Tom Petty song, You Don't Know How It Feels. Ursula didn't sing the words, just slapped out the beat and sang the guitar part. There's someone I used to see, Roscoe sang, grinning wildly. She don't give a damn for me. He sang along through the chorus, Ursula beating out the song as rusted chain link and scraggly front lawns flew by outside the window. Roscoe laughed and sang, and Kim gripped the steering wheel harder. People come, people go, he sang louder. Some grow young, some grow cold. Roscoe grabbed the steering wheel and jerked it hard to the right. Kim sucked in a deep breath and held it, her body shuddering as the car skidded sideways across the road, curving into a dry-rotted wooden fence. She gently shut her eyes and eased off the accelerator, even as she felt something give under the front left tire even as the car started flipping wildly end over end through the air. I woke up in between a memory and a dream. Roscoe cackled through the sound of shattering glass and tearing steel. Kim felt hard, sharp things piercing her chest and throat, felt her wrist snap and give as the force of the spin pulled her arm through the window and crushed it against the ground. Felt the trickle of blood leaking down through her collar and over her chin as the car settled on its roof in somebody's backyard. Kim took several deep breaths and saw she had slowed to a stop on the side of the road. A cat looked at her with slanted eyes from a nearby porch. Ursula had stopped singing in the back seat and just sat quietly, not wondering why her mother had pulled over to the side of the road. Her car sat alone on the road, nobody behind or before her. She turned and patted Ursula's leg, and the girl smiled at her. I think I would have liked her, Roscoe said as Ursula hopped out of the back seat in front of the school. Ursula tossed on her black jasmine backpack in a way that knocked her slightly off balance. She took three long sidesteps to correct herself and then turned to her mother. Kim smiled and waved at the girl, then watched her hop up to a group of friends as they walked through the front doors. I'm sure you would have, Kim said. You're a sick fuck, Roscoe. Kim's smile faded the further she got from the school, from her daughter. She and the other parents dispersed out of the carpool lane and into the world. Kim had heard other mothers talking about how much they loved dropping the kids off at school, how it unburdened them, but Kim felt untethered. With Ursula around, there's plenty of motivation to ignore Roscoe's bullshit, to close her eyes and count to five while holding her breath, to be sane, she supposed. But without her little girl around, she felt numb, 
alone in a colorless sea, adrift, waiting for something to float by so she could reach out her long arms and drag it down, down, down into the crushing dark beneath the waves. She drove, away from Pensacola, taking left and right turns with abandon, ignoring the signs to turn back, to turn around, even when there really weren't any. Roscoe rode with her, fiddling with the radio and cracking jokes. He tried to remind her of the things she'd fought to forget, but out here on the ethereal highway, he had little power. She was just Kim Waverly again, the same creature she'd always been. What she needed was a little kick, just something. Something small like that disgusting chunk of Chip Schiffmeyer's fried fish sandwich from sophomore year. What Roscoe hadn't reminded her of was Chip falling to the ground and screaming at football practice a few days later. His sweat had liquefied the powdered bleach she'd soaked into his headband and blinded him. No more football for Chip, and Kim had started eating meat again the next day. Of course I remember that, Roscoe said without being prompted. She hadn't spoken a word since she'd said goodbye to her daughter outside the elementary school. Kim sometimes wondered if she actually talked to people, or if she was pretty and boring enough that they simply didn't notice her at all. That her perfunctory smile was response enough for most. After all, what could a pretty house mother of two, Mrs. Bacon Mondays, bring to the conversation? It had been the math that she'd been doing in her head, she thought, that had brought Roscoe back, just as much as standing in front of that mirror. It was the math that had bled the cheer out of an already somewhat fake smile. The math said that she'd been married twelve years. Twelve years of hard work that didn't show up on any resume, that could get her as far as scrubbing dishes at a Ponderosa if she was lucky. Ursula was six. Six minus eighteen was twelve. Twelve more years until that perfect little girl no longer belonged to her. Twelve more years until the occasional visit from college to say hello and do laundry. Twelve more years until twenty-four years of marriage. A quarter century of bacon Mondays and Matt getting fatter and fatter. She'd be old then. All her prospects would be old too if she wanted to leave him. A single woman on her own, no job, and a meaningless 24-year resume. Hey, remember Mimi Calhoun? Roscoe asked. Of course, Kim said, watching the Welcome to Alabama sign fly past her on the right. It had rained and big puddles sat high on the shoulders of the road. The ugly, skinny trees that covered this part of America grew out of the puddles, their sparse limbs cutting shadows into the sky. They weren't like the trees in West Virginia, in Arson County where she was born. They weren't like the trees at the University of Cincinnati either, where Matt had ruined her chances of becoming a nurse, where she'd watched Miranda Mimi Calhoun drown in a cold, lonely alley. She'd only known Mimi in passing. They ran in the same crowds, the people who partied with Matt's friends at his fraternity house. Mimi had hooked up with Matt regularly. They'd even tried dating before he was ready to settle down. Kim hadn't really cared. She wasn't the type to get jealous. Matt cheated on her, if it could be called that, with Mimi a few times that she knew of. That's why it hadn't made sense to Kim that she'd followed Mimi out of the bar that night, one of the cramped, stinking college bars where everybody went on Tuesdays. Mimi was stumbled drunk and sweating, barely able to stand on her own. Kim wasn't much better. Roscoe had been there, wondering aloud where Mimi was off to and Kim knowing almost for certain that she was going to go hook up with Matt. Mimi hadn't the presence of mind to look around the alley when she took a shortcut through. She hadn't grown up like Kim had in the worst part of a bad place. She never suspected people might want to hurt her. She certainly never suspected Kim Waverly, of all people, would come up behind her and give her the lightest push down the stairs. So feather light it might have been a tap to get her attention. 
The word in the papers and subsequent candlelight vigils was that she'd broken a leg and concussed herself on the unforgiving concrete stairs. They talked about how she might have lived if she just stayed where she'd fallen, if she hadn't tried to crawl forward for help. Nobody knew that it was Kimberly who'd calmly descended the steps and dragged Mimi's head over to the blackened puddle of November meltwater. Nobody suspected a thing. Not the two off-work busboys who found her twenty minutes later and tried to resuscitate her, whom the paper had deemed unlikely heroes. Not the police or Mimi's friends or parents. Not a single soul in the world knew except her and Roscoe. Not even Matt, who came to her with tears in his eyes at a party a few days later. Kim burst out laughing. She had completely forgotten about that. Holy shit, she said under her breath. I knew you'd forgotten, Roscoe said. He was looking out the window and clucking his ragged tongue every time they passed a small rural house. Soon he wasn't clucking at all. They'd passed the last house nearly an hour ago. Kim didn't know what she was looking for, but she had time. At least four hours until she had to get back and pick up the kids. Until then, she knew. She would drive. The road narrowed to a single lane. Light clouds painted the sky like afterthoughts. Long, wispy strips of white connected to the heavens seemingly without purpose. She saw a truck approaching behind her, the same white as those clouds, but massive and growing larger. She could see the blue Ford decal on the grill almost at once. She'd always had good eyes. Your eyes are what I always liked most about you, Roscoe said, almost as though he were in a dream. They were the same color as mine. I thought that meant something. Do you remember what I told you? That it was like looking in a mirror, Kim said without hesitation. That was something she'd never forget, that or what had followed. The truck had covered the distance between her bumper and the horizon in seconds. It now loomed in a rearview mirror, totally blocking her view of the road behind her. She couldn't even see the driver, just the shining chrome of the grill and that cobalt blue Ford logo. She thought about speeding up or scooting over into the breakdown lane to let him pass, but decided against it. There wasn't enough room on the shoulder, which looked swampy anyway, and besides, fuck this guy. That's the spirit, Roscoe said with a laugh. Hey, maybe you should. It's helped you clear your mind before when I visited you. Maybe it'll help this time. Blow your pipes out. Get back on the right track. Kim gave him a disgusted look and he held his palms up. The skin there had been flayed nearly to the bone and what remained was covered in thick yellow blisters. Just trying to help. Kim went to say something back when the big truck revved its engine and swerved wildly to the right of her, trying to make a show of consternation. She saw almost too late that he was trying to skirt around her and slowed down and pulled over to the left. The big truck shot by at maybe a hundred miles per hour. She was going only sixty-five, ten over the speed limit on this stretch of highway. Kim raised her hand to flip the guy off but slapped it back down on the steering wheel as the back end of the truck pitched wildly sideways. She slammed the brake and felt a jolt as the Ford nicked the front right end of her station wagon. Kim cursed as the station wagon started into a spin of its own. Her teeth buzzed in harmony with the screeching, squealing noise of the station wagon's tires against the asphalt. Then she stopped. Hands still white-knuckling the steering wheel, she looked around and found herself facing the wrong direction on the highway. Without thinking, she threw her car in reverse, looked both ways, and then pulled onto the shoulder of the road. She got out of the car, ostensibly to check it for damage, and then ran around it to puke on the shoulder. Kim gathered herself together and looked for the other car, the big truck. 
She saw nothing but dark black skid marks on the highway and some light scarring on the grass from where he'd left the road. She started following the deep, nonsensical gouges in the earth, not knowing what she expected to find. They led to a single pile of crushed glass littering the ground, and an almost perfect hole in the trees where the truck had clearly flown through upside down. She could even see the square outline of where the truck bed ended at the back of the cab. You should check it out, Roscoe whispered. Someone might be hurt. An eerie twilight ruled the shade beneath the trees in the little highway forest. The debris from the truck was much worse here, but still somehow harder to see, as though the detritus were just as much a part of the forest as the roots and leaves. She found the truck half-submerged in a stand of boggy water. Not a speck of glass remained in any of the window frames, and the bed seemed to have been ripped totally free. What remained was a sad black skeleton of twisted steel ending in two wheels, one of which no longer had a tire. The passenger cab was completely empty. Help! moaned a voice from the other side of the vehicle. Kim froze in place, suddenly feeling as though she were an interloper in this whole mess. Then she remembered her poor pink station wagon up on the shoulder and walked forward. She found the man laying on his back in soft, marshy soil at the edge of the pond. One of his arms was clearly shattered, but the rest of him looked perfectly fine, aside from the splintered piece of wood sticking out of his stomach. His eyes, wide and a dark shade of blue, found Kim almost immediately. He looked like he wanted to move, but couldn't. Something about his body seemed off to Kim, and she realized that it was uncommonly still. A spinal injury, she thought, years of nursing school coming back to her in a flash. Yeah, probably, Roscoe said, walking alongside her. He kicked at the edge of the water, speckling Kim's sweatpants with flecks of mud. She knew she'd have to get rid of them now, but it was no great loss. Hey, lady, please help me, the guy said. I've been in an accident. I can see that, Kim said softly. She thought of Ursula sitting in the back of her car just hours ago, calmly clucking away at mailboxes and singing with Tom Petty. It hurt her to think of how badly this incident would have scared the girl. Kim walked over and knelt by the man. Are you alone? Were there others? No, he gasped. Just me. I'm on my way to New Orleans on business. Oh, God. I think I broke my back. Please, you, you gotta help me. Yeah, Kim said, standing and looking around the clearing. Yeah, I think I do. It was quiet here. The wild sound of birds and insects had faded after the crash and were only just returning, but they remained subdued. Sunshine leaked down through the hole in the trees over the standing water and warmed Kim's face. You know, this reminds me of where I lived when I was a little girl, she said. She looked down at the man. What, what's your name? Robert, he said, groaning with pain. I don't give a fuck about your childhood, lady. Just get out on the highway. Somebody's got to come by. They got to. Kim shook her head and looked back the way she'd came. If she hadn't just walked through that patch of forest, there'd be no way to tell it from all the rest. No, she said. It's real quiet out there, Robert. I'm sure nobody knows you're here but us. This is... Wow, this is just like your father's place, isn't it, Roscoe? What? the man asked, looking around frantically. Yeah, Roscoe said. Ground's a bit too soft, but I see what you mean. Kim closed her eyes and for a second she was back in blunt West Virginia. She could smell the hot scents of summer, overheated grass and pollen and sweat soaking into her blue spaghetti strap jumper. 
The ground was dry beneath her feet, not so far away. She was 12 again, and there was a band-aid on her knee from when she dumped her bike on the Lawrence Avenue traffic circle. She'd had to pick all the gravel out of that, piece by piece, until it bled clean and unencumbered. You could have killed me, she finally said, eyes still closed. The way you were driving. If I wasn't paying attention and didn't break fast enough, you could have killed me. She opened her eyes and looked down at the man. His face was pale, but his eyes were alive and alert. It was only beginning to dawn on him what kind of monster he was talking to, that he was a cornered rat with two broken legs. Please, lady, just help me, he said. If you go to that road, I'm sure somebody will pass by, she interrupted. No chance of that, like I said. She felt the old blunt accent creeping back in, that draw on the lilt and the vowels. It was such a determined, matter-of-fact way of talking. You could have killed me. That's what you should be thinking about now. What if my daughter had been in that car? She stepped closer and he tried to shy away, eyes flying around the clearing now, desperately trying to latch onto something, anything. I was training to be a nurse, you know, back in college before she was born, Kim said. I put that on hold when my first daughter, Millie, was born. Kim paused, looking down at her hands. I never thought of it like that until just now. Put it on hold. Guess that means I can pick it up again whenever. What do you think? I just... I just want someone to help me, he said. I don't... I don't want to die. Who does? Kim said. Roscoe squatted down on the opposite side of the man, his hood back. His face was smoking again, like it had then. His hairs curled and sparked down to the scalp as they burned. The expression on his face was a mixture of awe and recognition. A child seeing a tiger for the first time. You're going to be paralyzed, Kim said, pointing down at the man's shattered arm. She stepped on the brake and he did nothing but watch. Didn't hurt, did it? His eyes widened and his lip quivered. He was about to cry. If I got you out of here, best you're looking at is life in a wheelchair. Something else. Either somebody who loves you a whole lot or somebody you pay a whole lot of money to. Wiping your ass for the rest of your life. That's no way to live, Robert. Roscoe nodded in assent. Please, he whimpered, having only the slightest idea of what was coming. There was a boy named Roscoe lived up the street from me when I was a little girl, Kim said, straddling Robert with her feet. He was 18 when he died. He liked to tell me he loved me, and nobody else did because I was broken and poor just like him. He'd lock me in his daddy's tool shed with him sometimes and do stuff to me and tell me I liked it. But I didn't. Roscoe's face went slack. The strength fell out of his limbs and he crumpled to the ground, laying face up beside Robert's own terrified face. Robert had ceased looking around. He had eyes now only for Kim. She smiled down at him, a soft, loving smile. The same she'd give to Ursula when she tucked her in after dinner tonight. I stole a road flare from Roscoe's daddy's shed, filled that nasty little place with gasoline, Kimmy said, dropping to her knees. Her bottom rested on Robert's stomach, just above his useless hips. The shard of tree branch in front of her rested against her chest. That day I told Roscoe I wanted him real bad, that he could hurt me the way he liked and I wouldn't scream or cry or any of that. I told him to meet me in the shed, but I hid behind it. Then I threw the flare in when he went inside. Kim ran a finger over Robert's forehead, then rested her palms on his cheeks. You see, she continued, I thought he'd just burn up in there, but instead the whole inside of the shed blew apart. It threw Roscoe about ten feet, 
The fire had gotten in his lungs, burned off parts of his face and hands. But his eyes, Robert, they were just fine. Still alive, looking at me. I need you to look at me, Robert. I need you to watch me during what comes next. Mimi didn't, and uh, I think that might have ruined her for me. So I'm going to need you to watch. Please, he said. I won't tell anybody. I won't say anything. I know, Kim said. Roscoe couldn't talk either, but I knew what his eyes were saying. They were telling me how bad it hurt. They were begging me to let him go. She slid her hands down onto Robert's chest and pushed him into the mud. He screamed for just a second before the groundwater rushed in over his mouth and nose. His head thrashed in the murky water. It didn't take her much to hold him down. It hadn't taken much to finish things for Roscoe, either. You're so like him, Robert, Kim said to the dying man, knowing full well he couldn't hear her, but speaking anyway. You were so cocksure and full of yourself until just this moment. No thought for little girls and women in ugly pink station wagons, but here you are. Roscoe looked at me when I pushed the rest of the air out of his chest. Robert, I need you to look at me now. I need you to look at me, Robert. Small bubbles, smaller than all the ones that had come before, floated up out of Robert's open mouth. She felt a few tentative spasms in his chest and then nothing. She wondered just where the damage to his spine had to be that his lungs still worked so well and his arms didn't. She'd be sure to ask that in anatomy class. Yes, anatomy class, Kim said. I already have the credits, but it's been so long. Robert, what do you think? He said nothing. His wide, blue eyes, so like the color of the Ford logo on his big white truck, were growing pale and cold. But they were open, open and looking back at her just like she'd asked. Thank you for that, Robert, she said, standing and looking around the clearing. Roscoe, are you there? Nothing. She smiled and pushed herself out of the muck. Her clothes were ruined, but there were extras in the trunk. Throwaways she'd never had the mind to drop at Amvet's. She stripped naked on the side of the highway and wiped herself down with the clean parts of her soiled clothes, then wadded up everything and jammed it back into the bag. She'd drive back to Pensacola barefoot, stopping to throw the old bag of clothes in a dumpster on the way. Matt would never ask her why she was wearing the old Mickey Mouse t-shirt with You Are My Sunshine embroidered across the chest, even though she planned to wear it as pajamas from now on. And she knew nobody would ever ask her about the lonely death of a traveler named Robert whose big, bad Ford flew off the road and landed in an Alabama swamp. But people would ask her what made her want to go back to nursing school, she knew. And she knew that when they did, she'd smile and tell them that a visit from an old friend had cleared everything up for her, just like it always did. Kim sat in the driver's seat and found it warm and waiting. Then she turned on the car, cranked the speakers up to ten, and pulled a U-turn toward Pensacola. Have you ever felt stuck in a rut like that before? Did you handle things differently? Be sure to pop by and let us know on social media. We're on Twitter at WS Fairy Tales and Facebook at Westside Fairy Tales. You can drop us a line by email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. I love hearing back from fans, so don't feel shy about hitting me up. 
We'll be back in two weeks with our episode, They All Come By, about a guy stuck drinking at a bar waiting for people who may or may not show. It's in the style of a Twilight Zone episode, so if you're into that thing, you'll probably love it. Until then, don't forget, stay safe out there. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. All content here is copyright 2017, Tyler Bell. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.